Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, art and politics in the shadow of music with Alex Ross and his new book, Wagnerism. Alex Ross has been the music critic for The New Yorker since 1996. His first book, the international bestseller The Rest is Noise, listening to the 20th century, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and won both the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Guardian First Book Award. And he's also the author of the essay collection Listen to This, and now Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, which we're going to be talking about today. Alex, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi Neil, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that this book is Wagner-like in itself, in its length and its breadth, and obviously we're only going to really sort of skim the surface today. But first of all, let's perhaps talk about why Wagner, what Wagner means to you. Yeah, well, it is a sprawling topic about and around and in the wake of a a sprawling man and and body of work. Uh, My history with Wagner, I think, as with many people is somewhat kind of uneven and and circuitous. When I first listened to him as a kid growing up with classical music, which was just my passion from a very early age, Wagner didn't make any sense to me. I found the music hazy and and sort of um, vaguely disconcerting, uh, just in terms of how sort of ideas drifted about with, without seeming to cohere. And I became aware you know, later on of, of the enormous problems around Wagner, his anti-Semitism, his links to German nationalist ideology that, that led to Nazism. And so it was not sort of love at first hearing by any means. But over the years, I became more and more fascinated by him uh, and grew to appreciate him as a, as a theatrical composer. And he was an extraordinary theatrical uh, thinker and, and just, a, just a great dramatist who used words and, and music together uh, to very powerful effect. A great psychologist. Uh, his, his characters are enormously complicated, despite the fact that they seem to be kind of cartoonish gods and, and heroes and, and grail seekers and, and the like. Uh, they are full of acute, nuanced modern psychology. Um, and this whole, the whole question of the problem around Wagner intrigued me more and more. And what is it, what was it about this composer who caused such consternation, such confusion, and also such passion and, and, and mania uh, from the outset. I mean, there was a cult that formed around Wagner. Um, and, and after that, there was a, a wave of activity at the arts, uh, all across the arts, especially at the fantasy at the end of the 19th century. 
in which people were reacting to Wagner in all kinds of ways, all kinds of unexpected ways. And that really last part of the picture, this this phenomenon of Wagnerism, of his influence in the arts, was what this book ultimately is about. It's not about Wagner himself, his biography, uh, his work, although that's present on every page. It is about sort of why artists in other genres and other disciplines responded so strongly to Wagner and were impelled by him to make all kinds of forward leaps and discoveries, even if the end result was not recognizably uh, Wagnerian. And so that's the story I tell in this book. And indeed, you, you mentioned there the sort of cult-like following, the, the title Wagnerism is a thing. It's a, it's a phenomenon, isn't it? What is it? Well, you know, starting in so already in the 1840s uh, into the 1850s, something about Wagner's music just put people under a spell and it just seemed to transport them into new realms of, of experience and, and feeling in a way that, you know, no composer before Wagner quite had done. And so you started to get reports of people having these experiences uh, of feeling bewitched by Wagner, uh, kind of seduced by Wagner, uh, a kind of fainting <laughs> uh, uh, sort of having kind of just sort of, sort of medical disorders uh, after listening to Wagner, becoming aroused, becoming, you know, sort of there's this idea of like Wagner as a zone of, of sexual uh, danger and, and corruption. That was that was very widespread. And, you know, if you look to a figure like Baudelaire, who was obviously uh, a, had become a very formidable uh, figure in his own right by the time he listened to Wagner and wasn't sort of appreciably influenced, you know, in terms of his own work. But he felt this spell and wrote this extraordinary essay in 1861 describing uh, how, how Wagner had overpowered him and, and penetrated him. Uh, and and it's, it's a tribute to sort of something about this work, which just made people lose their minds a little bit. Uh, Wagner himself worried that Tristan and Isolde, his, his most radical opera, might drive people insane. Um, and in a few cases, it actually seems to have accomplished that. Um, literally, there's an example of um, the singers who were playing the titular roles were perhaps killed by it. <laughs> you know, there's this idea there's something deadly about Wagner, you know, the, the, the man who was first supposed to sing uh, Tristan, kind of, uh, who did first sing uh, Tristan, sort of keeled over uh, dead sort of shortly after that. And then there were several conductors who died in the middle of performing Wagner. And so there was this, he was, he was suspected of, of possessing some demonic or, or, or devilish uh, force, which wasn't unprecedented in the, in the field of the arts. You know, people thought that Paganini was was possessed by the devil. And then sort of after Wagner, you, you find Robert Johnson uh, uh, said to have had a, a pact with the devil, the great blues singer, various other stories. But, you know, with Wagner, I mean, the interesting thing about this sort of the subsequent history of sort of how Wagner, you know, entered into culture and entered into politics, there was at times something uh, very dark, uh, kind of not in a supernatural way, but kind of in, in, a, in a sort of historically verifiable way about the, the effect that it was having on, on people. And so he, he kind of unleashed forces in his audiences that he himself could not control. We're obviously going to eventually get on to Wagner's anti-Semitism. I think that's inevitable. But in terms of, I mean, again, it's it's probably unwise to, to try and look at the politics of the past on a sort of modern left-right spectrum. But his politics do seem to to shift over the course of his life quite significantly and, and indeed a lot of Wagner's ideas one would have thought would have been antithetical to the Nazis yeah I mean his his politics were very complicated and you can sort of talk about a shift in some ways but basically it's from beginning to end I'm not sure that he, he ever really had a coherent political ideology he was an enthusiast and sort of a different 
times of his life, he kind of seized on on some idea or, or some kind of political feeling and, and sort of ran with it for a little while and then would often swerve in a different direction. You know, the defining moment of his life was in 1849 when he participated in an uprising in Dresden uh, against the Saxon monarchy and was forced to flee Germany, German-speaking lands, and, and lived in exile for more than a decade. And so, you know, after that, uh, for a long time, Wagner was very strongly associated with the left. And uh, there are a large number of leftist political figures or, or artists who had, you know, political agendas, whether socialists, social democrats, communists, anarchists, uh, uh, sort of ordinary liberal democrats, you know, all across the spectrum, uh, they saw Wagner as, as a hero of progressive thinking, uh, because there is a kind of palpable revolutionary agenda, uh, especially in, in the ring cycle, which he began writing exactly in the middle of that uh, revolutionary period. But then later on, you find him aligning himself very strongly with German nationalism and with the formation of, of the German Empire. In 1870, 71, and he writes Die Meistersinger, an opera which is really infused with nationalist feeling. And he tends at that point to sort of cover up his, his earlier revolutionary sympathies. But then at the very end of his life, he kind of swerves again, and he sort of loses faith in the German Empire, becomes disenchanted with it. And sort of he seems to be either swerving back to the older socialist beliefs or, or moving on to some kind of other mystical belief system that's very hard to define, even as the anti-Semitism is becoming more and more acute. So yeah, it's very hard to sort of step back and say this figure belongs to any one political movement, whether left or right. And so if you're going to make a political appropriation, and a lot of people did that in the late 19th uh, century and into the 20th century, you have to omit some part of the picture. Uh, you have to simplify matters and really distort his complicated politics to make him suitable for propaganda. And people on the left did that as well as people on the right. So you talk in the book about how, as a composer, as in terms of his music, Wagner's not necessarily that influential on music that comes afterwards, but much more so in the sort of wider cultural sphere, and particularly in what you describe as artists of silence, novelists, painters, poets, etc., um, so I want to talk about his impact on some writers, some artistic movements, and perhaps, first of all, let's talk about Wagner's influence on the rise of modernism. Yes, well, this is sort of the heart of the book, and it, it may be kind of an unexpected focus, uh, because we are so used to looking at Wagner through the political lens and having this kind of political argument of the meaning of Wagner. But in fact, for a generation or several generations of artists and writers around the, in the fin de siècle period, uh, it wasn't Wagner politics that interested them at all. It was, first of all, the design of his works, their extraordinary form, uh, their lack of conventional form, the way in which an opera like Tristan and Isolde seems to begin and you just enter into this stream, this flow of experience, of consciousness, um, and, and you're not hearing arias and, and, and duets and, and choruses. It just sort of flows and flows and flows. Endless melody uh, was a phrase that Wagner coined, which uh, widely circulated in that period. And then the idea 
that you have these light motifs, these recognizable motifs that sort of float up from that stream, uh, but operate in a very kind of singular way, and they kind of trigger memories, or, or, they, or they are forebodings of, of something to come. And, you know, artists and, and writers sort of were really fascinated by, by the newness, uh, the strangeness and freshness of that discourse. And they were also very conscious of how brilliantly Wagner used myth. And, you know, what he did when he turned to the ring cycle in 1848, he stepped away from historical subject matter or, or kind of semi-historical, semi-legendary uh, stories that were really the bread and butter of, of opera through the ages. Uh, and he was working with pure myth. And he sort of turned to Nordic and, and Germanic uh, myths. Um, but he used them in a very particular way so that you felt how analogous they were to modern situations and modern psychologies. And so there's this kind of disguised modernity behind this this facade of myth. And this really caught uh, the attention of subsequent artists. It, it was a very powerful way to comment on the present uh, through these ancient figures of the past. And so when I get to figures like Virginia Woolf, uh, Marcel Proust, uh, James Joyce, uh, uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, and I have substantial sections on, on all of them and a number of others, you know, very often that manipulation of myth is sort of what they've taken from Wagner, even if, you know, some of them may, might have a quite antagonistic or skeptical relationship from Wagner, but they still think there's something that can be learned from him. And that was the case with Joyce, who was very critical of Wagner. But, you know, the entire conception of Ulysses is really an inversion of the ring cycle. In the ring, you have myth on the outside and kind of modernity lurking behind the scenes. And with Ulysses, of course, modernity is on the surface and sort of myth is behind the scenes. But Joyce studied Wagner very carefully. And, and you can see many, many signs of, of Wagner's influence in presence um, in that novel. And, and the same goes for a number of other of those figures I mentioned. And someone else who I wanted to talk about who's massively influenced by Wagner that might surprise some people that are only familiar with her more famous works is um, is Willa Cather. Yeah, well, this was a kind of wonderful voyage of discovery for me because at the beginning of this process, more than a decade ago, I had read some Willa Cather, but I wouldn't have described myself as a as a great devotee. And in the process of working on this book, I completely fell in love with Cather's writing. Uh, I really explored her world. I went to Red Cloud in Nebraska, the, the town where she uh, grew up, and the Cather archives in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. I got to know many Cather scholars and local experts. And I just I just became a kind of you know Cather fanatic. And so I ended up devoting an entire chapter of my book to her. And there's no other chapter that's, that's uh, concentrated on a single figure. But there's something very powerful and, and very kind of singular about Cather's relationship with Wagner, because she was not sort of treating him through this political lens, and, and she was not necessarily treating him as a source of technical uh, ideas. Uh, you know, she was not a, a doctrinaire modernist, although I think there is something more subtly modernistic about her work. It's, she somehow felt that Wagner chimed with her experience of these wide open landscapes and this idea of a, of a solitary figure, very often a female figure in her stories, moving through this landscape. And she felt sort of Wagner was the background music for those sort of very American adventures and, and narratives. And so the great Wagner heroines of Brunhilde and Isolde can be seen at, at many points uh, behind, sort of in the background 
of Kyler's characters. And then, of course, she wrote a great novel, which isn't one of the most famous ones, but is, is very much worth reading, The Song of the Lark, which is a fictional biography of a Wagner soprano uh, who comes from a, a landscape very much like Cather's own and undergoes this development um, toward uh, her great Wagner career. And so obviously in, in that work, uh, Wagner is absolutely essential. But you find intimations of Wagner all through the work, uh, including in her magnificent later novel, Death Comes for the Archbishop, uh, which seems to have Parsifal, uh, Wagner's mystical final opera, uh, lurking behind it. I just loved that whole experience of working that chapter and, and getting to know Cather more deeply. And this was so often the case with this book, where I would just go back to authors that I knew and find something fresh as I looked at them through this Wagner lens. Or there were sort of writers that were completely new to me, some of these weird second and third tier French symbolists, novelists, and, and, and poets. Um, and so I loved exploring those kind of dusky corners of fin de siècle culture. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alex Ross, and we're talking about his latest book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. And Alex, I said inevitably we were going to go back to uh, Wagner's anti-Semitism. And surprisingly from this distance, where it's one of the central things that even anybody that hasn't heard Wagner's music would probably know about his anti-Semitism, that it's not particularly clear if anti-Semitism is a feature of his work. Yeah, well, this is a subject of endless debate in the Wagner world. I mean, the fact that he was a, a ferocious, odious anti-Semite is inarguable. And, and he, he wrote this horrible essay in 1850, uh, A Jewishness in Music, where he purported to find Jewish characteristics in, in the work of composers like Mendelssohn and Meyerbeer, and, and said that the Jewish artists could never write work that was genuinely their own. They, they were always imitating, and then they were parasitic on other cultures. And this is the kind of language and, and, and metaphor that is just became, you know, was at the core of anti-Semitism as it became more and more dangerously biological and, and, and quasi-pseudoscientific uh, uh, in, in the later 19th century. And Wagner played a role in that, in, in popularizing this lethal uh, new form of anti-Semitism, which was not religiously based and could not be sort of addressed through, uh, simply through assimilation. Uh, there was 
something fundamentally different about Jewish people uh, organically. This is what the, the belief was. Uh, so that is clear. Is the anti-Semitism present in the works is a much more difficult question because Wagner never gave the slightest indication uh, that that was his intention. Uh, but nonetheless, you have these characters like the dwarves in the ring, Alberic and Mima, uh, with their scheming and, and their sort of manner of speech uh, which seems to kind of align with Jewish speech as Wagner defined it in that notorious pamphlet, or Beckmesser, uh, the pedantic critic in, in Die Meisterzinger. And he also has this kind of speech pattern, and, and his voice is sort of pushed uncomfortably high for the singer, uh, which which uh, produces kind of this uh, unnatural um, uh, intonation. And so maybe, you know, maybe there's, there's uh, an intention there or an effect there. Um, the trouble is, as I said, first, Wagner never indicated that's what, what he was doing. And second, there isn't much evidence from that early period that people were interpreting the characters that way. You know, from time to time, uh, people would make that association, but it was not a dominant feature of how these works were being discussed in, in the late 19th, uh, early 20th centuries. And in the Nazi period, you know, you actually find no discussion whatsoever of Beckmesser as a, as a Jewish caricature. After the Second World War, this theory advanced, uh, that there, there was this kind of anti-Semitic design to the operas. Uh, Theodore W. Adorno was one of the first to articulate that. But it remains a, a matter of debate. And, you know, I I am not completely persuaded um, by the theory, but nor do I dismiss it. Uh, I, I think there is something there. It's very hard to sort of put your finger on it. Was there some kind of unconscious intention on Wagner's part? It's, it's very strange. You know, what I would say is you don't find this blatant anti-Semitism as you find in many, many other artists of the 19th century or, or of earlier uh, eras. Uh, you, you know, you, you don't find a character like Fagin in, in Oliver Twist, uh, um, Shylock in, in, in Shakespeare and Merchant of Venice. Uh, and so this, this, this is a different case uh, with Wagner. It's not on the surface, but there is sort of something behind the scenes. And when you go on in the book to discuss, as you call it, the um, the Wagner Hitler problem, it also seems that while there's you know there's absolutely no doubt that Hitler was a, a huge fan of of Wagner, that there's not necessarily any evidence that Wagner's anti-Semitism informed Hitler's. Yeah, I think people make the assumption Hitler fell deeply in love with Wagner's music at an early age. Wagner was a ferocious anti-Semite. Uh, Hitler, of course, was a, a, a murderous uh, uh, anti-Semite, you know, without analog in, in, in world history. Uh, therefore, Wagner must have affected Hitler's anti-Semitism. But again, there's actually no cut and dried evidence of that. Strangely enough, Hitler never once mentioned Wagner's anti-Semitism or, or quoted from uh, the anti-Semitic writings. You know, of course, he must have known those writings and other people around Hitler, other Nazis uh, did quote them. Uh, but I think it is a sign that that for Hitler, first and foremost, Wagner was this great German cultural figure whom he adored. I mean, it was one of the few kind of genuine things about Hitler, I think, was his deep affection for Wagner, uh, which formed when he was a teenager. And it was only quite a bit later that his political views developed, uh, that he really showed any sign of interest in politics at all. Uh, and it was only after the First World War that he really became uh, radicalized. And so there's a gap there. And I think it's difficult to argue that, that Wagner was a primary political influence on Hitler. But that doesn't mean at all that Wagner didn't play a very dark 
and destructive role in Nazi Germany as a propaganda figure, as as a, a great artist who was being linked to Nazi ideology and just sort of Nazi iconography in a way that was so effective that no one has ever been able to detach from it. And so, yes, in so many people's minds, Wagner is interchangeable with Hitler. You know, it's it's the one thing that a lot of people know about Wagner, that he was Hitler's favorite composer. I think in my book, you know, without ever losing sight of that fact, of that primary fact about Wagner's posthumous history. I also want to remind people that this composer had a great many other meanings in culture and in politics, and he impressed and and inspired a a huge variety of figures, uh, including Jews, including Theodor Herzl, uh, the founder of Zionism, uh, including W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, the great uh, African-American philosopher and, and, and civil rights uh, activist and feminists and, and sort of early pioneers of gay rights and, and, and the communists and anarchists and so on that I mentioned. And so we, we shouldn't you know, erase all of that in the name of identifying Wagner so completely with Hitler. In fact, I think this is sort of too much of a gift to Hitler to sort of let him possess this incredibly complicated um, and, and sort of richly, uh, richly influential composer uh, for all time. And so that is the intention of the, of the book to a great extent is to restore a sense of balance around what Wagner meant. Well, certainly, as you you talk in the book, in film and other popular culture, there there is no end of places post the Second World War where we can see Wagner's influence. Tell us about how some of the uh, some of the people that you talk about, Philip K. Dick, for instance, and then obviously some of the films, Apocalypse Now being the uh, the one that everybody will be familiar with. Well, Philip K. Dick is sort of a great example of sort of the unexpectedness of Wagnerian influence um, because you know in some of his novels, Wagner is equated with Nazism in a way that you sort of find in, in so much uh, other uh, culture of the post-1945 uh, period, that way in which, you know, if, you know, when a Nazi, you know, shows up in a movie, you know, uh, uh, quite often, you know, Wagner will be playing in the background or so they'll sort of turn Wagner on the radio. It's kind of a shorthand. Uh, it's, it's, sort of, it's a marker for their Nazism. And so that happens in Dick's novels as well. But then you find uh, especially later in life, as as Dick becomes sort of more and more esoteric and, and mystical in his preoccupations, uh, he turns to Parsifal, the final opera, which which had long been a fascination with occult uh, thinkers and 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 sort of uh, people pursuing sort of alternative uh, spiritual modes, um, and and so Dick fastens onto that uh, in, in in a really surprising and fascinating way, and you know in terms of Wagner's kind of wider pop culture and and Hollywood influence it is mixed because you know yes you have all those Nazi identifications but then also you have Bugs Bunny uh, you have you have a sort of much more playful engagement with Wagner you just have kind of Wagner as the maker of these great striving heroic tunes um, and you know the riot of the Valkyries uh, above all quite early on in Hollywood history sort of completely took on a life of its own um, as sort of the, the the music of sort of horses riding across the plains in, in, in westerns or, you know, sort of uh, uh, military forces on the march um, and sort of culminating in that extraordinary scene in Apocalypse Now, where a really interesting transposition occurs, very much sort of deliberate on the part of Francis Coppola um, and his uh, editor, uh, Walter Murch, to 
to take this this music that was so often equated with German aggression, uh, the German will to power, and assign it to Americans, uh, because it's it's an American air cavalry unit which is launching this brutal assault on a Vietnamese village. It kind of devolves into bloody chaos. Uh, and at the beginning of the sequence, the the Robert Duvall character is using racist language uh, as he sort of gets ready to, to order the strike. Uh, and so instead of uh, Nazi uh, imperialist uh, aggressors uh, and world conquerors, it's it's American uh, world conquerors. And so that's, a, I think, a deliberate provocation of the assumptions that, that people make uh, about this music and, and its cultural symbolism. And, and I think it's a very interesting lesson to draw from Wagner. It's something I emphasize toward the, the end of the book, especially for, for Americans and for American readers. You know, what is it about our culture, about sort of uh, American popular culture that has lent itself to this kind of uh, aggressive, militaristic, uh, hegemonic uh, uh, imagery? And so we can sort of use Wagner as a thread to, to question our own cultural history and and iconography. So that's one important point that I wanted to throw into the air at the end of the book. And indeed, we can still see, obviously, in films as, well, I was going to say as diverse, they're all very similar, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, I don't know, Thor <laughs> Ragnarok or something. Um, and obviously people, you know, still flock to Beirut whenever it's on and um, Wagner's records sell. Clearly his influence carries on. Let's just imagine if Hitler had been obsessed with somebody else. You know, who knows? I mean, it is it is a valid question. You know, if all of this sort of hadn't happened, you know, if Hitler had fastened onto someone else, or if just Hitler had been, you know, run over by a streetcar at some point and, and, you know, had never entered the world stage and never created this colossal identification between Wagner and his horrific ideology, I think we would see Wagner very differently now. He would still be a complicated figure. And of course, people would still be aware of, of his anti-Semitism. And, you know, already after the First World War, uh, a lot of people had questioned Wagner as sort of being, you know, this is something about this German form of, of Wagnerism, which is very troubling and, and sort of the aggressiveness of it. Uh, but no, we, we would not have ever demonized uh, Wagner in this way. But the fact is, you know, this is the history uh, that we, we must confront. And I think, unfortunately, you know, as much as I love Wagner's music and, and think that his you know, work deserves to be appreciated much more kind of widely um, and variously uh, than it is. At the same time, there was something in Wagner which contributed to. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't inevitable, but but there's something in him which contributed to that development. Um, and this is something that Thomas Mann said. Uh, and Thomas Mann is kind of the heroic Wagner commentator for me because he was so passionate about the subject, but he's also so ambivalent and 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 was so clear in terms of how he saw the darker, more shadowy aspects of the phenomenon. So he said that that Wagner lent himself, lent a handle to his own misuse. <laughs> So, you know, on the one hand, acknowledging there was a distortion, that there, there was a an exploitation of Wagner in Nazi Germany, but it was a process that Wagner himself participated in uh, on some level. And that is simply the history that we're left with and that we have to sort through. So I've been talking to Alex Ross. We've been talking about his latest book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, which is out in the UK from Forty State. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you. It was a delight to chat.
This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.